One of the great privileges of sitting up front is um, actually, number one, no one hears me sing. Number two, I hear all of you sing, and you sound so good singing. We're going to now enter into God's Word and ask Him to speak. Let me get my tissues. It's one of the most beautiful times of the week where we as God's people can come before his throne and cry out for him. And when we cry out, he hears like a gracious father sends the son to care for us as children. And so would you pray with me as we open up to God's word? God, I want to thank you that you care for every single person, man, woman, and child in this room. God, I want to thank you that you know each of their stories. You know, the sin they have committed and the sin that has been committed against them. We need forgiveness and we need healing and love. And so I pray that through your commandments today, through examining your law, that we might see the crucified and risen, resurrected Christ who has loved us as his neighbors. We love you very much and we pray that you would speak and work. You're the only one who makes this work effective, Lord. And so make this word effective, we pray, by faith in you, in Jesus' name, amen. The other day, I stopped over at, uh, at Publix on, on, on 29, and uh, I was looking for a birthday cake for a friend of mine, and so I traveled over to the baked goods section, uh, grabbed the cake that I thought would uh, be delicious, and then I walked over to the checkout line, and there was a man who kind of scooted in right in front of me and stood on line to be served. He, uh, he had three uh, gift cards in his hands, and then he put them down on the conveyor belt. They slid down to the clerk, and uh, the clerk said, uh, I'm sorry, sir, would you be willing to take those gift cards to the customer service desk? It'd be quite challenging for me to do them here. And uh, the man said, I will not. He said, you could do it here, so you'll do it. Um, and then he stood there with his arms crossed, staring at the woman, the clerk, and she listened. Um, it took her a while. A line formed behind us as she went through the process and then after she was done, she printed out the receipts and attempted to hand the man the, the cards with the receipt, to which then the man responded, bag. Um, and she seemed a little confused, probably due to his abrupt and aggressive nature, and she said, I'm sorry, what? He said, bag. Put them in a bag. And so the lady grabbed the bag, he, she uh, handed them to him, and then the man reached out, snatched them for, from her hand aggressively, and walked out the doors. I tell you, it was so intense to watch. And then it was my turn, and so I took a step forward. I looked at her. She was on the verge of tears, and I said, are you okay? She said, I think I need to take a breath. And I said, I think that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? And she did one of those. I said, it's hard working with people, isn't it? She said, yeah, people could be really cruel. That week I had been meditating and constantly thinking about one quote that was written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I thought it would be good for me to share it to her. 
And so I said, hey, can I, can I read to you something that I've been thinking about a lot lately? I posted it on my LinkedIn profile this week. And she said, sure, what is it? I said a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is what he said. Let no man bring you so low as to hate him. And she looked at me and smiled and said, thank you. And we had this moment of mutual understanding, bond of connection, and then I left. We experienced this thing together, which words are hard to describe, but, I, but, but if I were to describe it or, or talk about what it is, I, I believe it was a bond of love in a mutually familiar, broken world where there are broken people, broken things, and broken situations, two human beings in those broken things grabbing onto hope and love. This is what our hearts long for amidst brokenness and broken people and broken things and broken families and situations. Glory and perfection, yet we still encounter things like this both in and outside the family, at work, you name it. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus is approached by this young religious leader, and this young religious leader seeks to put Jesus' knowledge of the Ten Commandments to the test. And the young man said this to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, we began a two-part sermon series by looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, last week, we started off with Commandments 1 through 5, which talked about our love for God and His love for us. This morning, we're going to look at the second table of the law, Commandments 5 through 10, and I'd like to show us um, how the Ten Commandments affect the way that we live with and love each other. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Exodus chapter 20 this morning, looking at verses 12 through 21. And you'll see there up on the screens that I've titled this sermon this morning, God's Heart for the World and Our Life Together. Three things from this text I'd like to show you. Number one, what is God's intention? Number two, what is our responsibility? And number three, most importantly, what is the Redeemer's work and love? God's intention, our responsibility, the Redeemer's work and love, we'll begin by reading the text up front. Exodus chapter 20, 12 through 22. The text begins and says this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of a trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. 
Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to show you his intention. Well, uh, if you were here last week, you might recognize um, that as our text here begins, that we're not starting a new section or story, but rather are picking up in the middle of a narrative which has been progressively been building over the past few weeks. Two weeks ago, in chapter 19, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet God, and at the end of the chapter, he came down off the mountain after meeting him to reveal to the people all that God had spoken to him. And so last week in chapter 20, Moses spoke on God's behalf and gave the people the Ten Commandments, the first half, or what we'd like to call the law. In verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, we looked at commandments 1 through 4 together. Now here we are beginning in verse 12. And what we have before us is commandment number 5. It says this. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, what I want for us to notice about these words here is, is that as, as simply as this commandment may seem from a first glance, there's much more to this commandment than only this being about the parent-child relationship. And so yes, it starts here and has the majority of its emphasis and focus here, but in the second half of this commandment here, what we have is the answer to the question why. Or for what purpose must a child honor their father and mother? The answer, so that the days of the child may be long in the land that God is giving them. In other words, what we have here is God's heart revealed for the greater calling and purpose of the nuclear family. So, so stopping for a second and taking a step back to overlook what we have now studied and seen in the progression of the law. We have commandments one through four about God. Commandment number five here about family. And what we're about to see in commandments six through ten are a concern for the world. This indeed is the order and progression of the Christian life. God first, family second, and then the world. God and our relationship with him is to go on to influence and affect our family, and our family is to exist, to live and be for the sole purpose of influencing and affecting the world. Um, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you might recognize how this comes as no surprise. Actually, this is the way it's been since the beginning, back to the garden. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve after um, he created them and got married. He said this. He said, hey, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, I want you to have children. And my attention for you and your family is to fill and bless the world. You know me. I love and have created you. 
Now you through progressive generations are to fill and spread throughout the earth. Cultivate, rule, create, have dominion, bless, steward, keep, live, be in this garden for my glory and my glory is uniquely tied to your flourishing and success. Why? Because Adam and Eve were uniquely created in the image of God. Chapter 5, verse 3, Adam had a son, and the text says that the son was in Adam's own likeness, in his own image. In other words, the image of God and man continues down through the generations. And notice here about the commandment, that this is not a commandment for children to obey their parents. The command is honor your parents, which is way broader and all-encompassing. God is revealing the missional heart and purpose for the nuclear family in the world, that they, through relationship with him, commandments one through four, will then look to each other and not just remember who made them, but also how they were made. That both the parent and the child would know and respect one another as made in the image of God and therefore live according to their God-given roles. Parents are to raise their children to fear and to know God. And children are to honor and respect and revere their parents so that by God's grace it would go well with their future and the earth indeed would go on to be blessed. Last year, the Census Bureau um, put out some staggering statistics. I've read them to you before, but I think they're powerful enough for me to read to you again. Here's what the research showed. Research showed that out of the 130 million households that are in the U.S., only 18% of them feature married parents with children under the age of 18. Which means... Out of the 130 million American homes, there are only 23 million with which um, have what we call nuclear families. That's down 40% since 1970 and the lowest it's been since 1959. Europe's birth rate right now since 2012 has been in the negative, which means for more than a decade, Death in Europe has been outnumbering births. If this is not a contradiction or opposite picture to what we see commanded in the garden, I don't don't know what is. In other words, what I'm trying to show you is that our world is changing, our culture is changing, its view on marriage is changing, its view on family is changing, its view on children is changing. Young couples are choosing not to have children. When they can. Honor in the family system is being thrown out the door. So is discipline in rearing children with honor and respect towards the older generation. Parents' view on children is changing. But we must not forget this, that the Ten Commandments address the most important elements of human existence. And that behind them, God the creator longs for adherence to these principles for the sake of transforming society. 
family is at the core and center of God's missional mandate to his people. One man named J.A. Motyer, a theologian and commentary, said this. At the heart and center of every healthy and flourishing society, there is a strong presence and sense of family. The honor of parents is key to social stability and security of tenor in the land. When we step out of the arena of duty to God, we step into the arena of duty to the family, which is our first and foremost area obligation in the world. The fifth commandment is addressed to children and is significant. Covenant law has regard to the family born within the covenant and imposes its obligations on the children of covenant parents. This is not a popular idea in our modern world where, where youth is worshipped and old age is despised. The result is the folly by which men and women strive to maintain eternally youthful only to find out that that's an impossible task. This commandment here is part of the general attitude towards old age that Israel was commanded to have throughout the Old Testament, symbolizing and embodying practical wisdom for life. Do you hear this? There's wisdom in this command. The glory of an old man or woman is their gray hair, which represents their wisdom in life. And the glory of a young man or child is their youth. Parents, your children do not have more wisdom than you. They are not called to make decisions for you. There is not to be a negotiating between the parent and child as if the child has wisdom and perspective on life that can lead the family. My generation's really struggling with this. It's hard to watch. I haven't arrived, but it's hard to watch. Parents, the best thing you could do for your children is teach them to fear and honor the Lord. And a major part and role in this is for them learning how to respect and honor you. Uh, you might uh, be making sense of this all, and you might be thinking, okay, now I see why you're having a fourth child, James. Uh, let me just say, Lizzie and I really haven't figured this thing out, okay? I am so fearful, and I am really trembling at the idea of a fourth child and another little baby girl. Um, but guess what? As crazy and as stressful as t and terrifying as that may be, Lizzie and I are actually really glad that we're, we got pregnant. Do you want to know why? Because our lives exist for the missional mandate to be fruitful and multiply so that we would make disciples out of our children and that by God's covenant grace, one day those children would be sent out into the world to make an impact for the gospel. I know I don't have control over my children's hearts. I know I'm a new parent, but I'm just believing in God's covenant grace for the institution of families and his promise. My children are children of promise. And so I will believe that when the time comes, I will send them out into the world as a force to be reckoned with for the gospel. My life, our lives, your life, do not belong to yourselves. Parents, do you see your main role as this? Children, you're here 
I love when you're here in worship. It's communion Sunday. Children, hear me. Look, I'm raising my hand. Hear God speak to you this morning through his word and law. God wants you to honor your parents so that it may go well with you. Your parents love you. They're wise. The good news of the gospel is that God longs for humanity to flourish by and through nuclear families that live to honor him. Amen. Amen. That was point number one, God's intention. I'd like now to move to point number two and show you our responsibility. If, uh, if you've been here for some time, you might know as a church that uh, we not only have a, a mission and vision statement, but uh, we also have something that we call our motto, which is a threefold emphasis. There's our new logo, there's our name, and there at the bottom, if, if they're too small, I'm sorry, there's our motto. Gospel, family, and mission. Three things that we're trying to put on everywhere as our core uh, 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 focus. Section number one of the commandments, one through four. Uh, the gospel, the gospel of God. Commandment number five, we just covered it, family. Now here in commandments six through 10, the thing I wanna show us is this idea of mission or what I believe Jesus would name as neighbor love. Um, within the context of the last five commandments here, what I want for us to see above and beyond all else is that there is no such thing as a concern for God um, within the life of an individual or family that ignores or is unconcerned with uh, people or relationships around them. In other words, our intention and in relating to the visible reality of those around us reveals just how well and seriously we know and take the gospel. Um, commandments 6 through 10, here they are. Number six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet anything that your neighbor has. It sounds really good, doesn't it? This is a, a great list of morality. And so I think naturally the question that flows from these commandments here is, okay, James, is what we're looking at a call to neighbor love through being a moral person? Here's the answer. Yes. Yes. This is a list of morality. This is a list of morality that, if obeyed, would go on to accomplish what Jesus calls neighbor love. James, that makes me really happy. I'm really longing to live like this. This is my goal. And as it pertains to my family, James, if I'm honest, really, this is what I want for my children, to grow up with a good education, succeed and find a great job, to be law-abiding citizens, to go to church on Sunday morning, get a great home, know their neighbors, and someone, when someone moves into the neighborhood to put a pie on their front door and welcome them as a way of love. That's awesome. This is great. We should pursue these things. 
But in this second table of the law, this is where we need to slow down and consider the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, another religious man, an expert on the law, approaches Christ, and he asks Jesus a question. He says this, Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, what do you think? How do you read the law? To which the young man responded and said, listen to this response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. And so you want to know what Jesus said? He said, great. If you do this, you'll live. But then, but then Luke, in the 10th chapter, in verse 28, adds a commentary for help, to help us understand what's, what's deeper and, 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 and under the covers really going on. Verse 28. But he, the religious man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you see that word justify there that I underlined? In Greek, it actually means to show or to prove righteousness. In other words, in, in light of the law, which commands love for God, this man longed to show Jesus and everybody around that he was able to keep these commands and had done so. Which indeed is a, is a tempting thing to do if we just see these things as a narrow list of rules rather than stopping to consider the depth and what lies beneath the surface. Some have put it this way. There is a way to understand the law through the letter of the law or observing its mere words, and there is a way through Christ to observe the heart of the law, to dive deep into the meaning, which then go on to reveal the heart of God. And so this is what Jesus did in, in Matthew chapter 5. He preached a sermon on two of these commandments. In your text, verses 13 through 14, Jesus preached on Murder and adultery. Listen to the way that Jesus interprets the law. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intention has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see what Jesus is doing with these commandments here? He's, uh, he's showing us just how deep and quite impossible they are to keep by exposing the rigor of the law. And I'd say, if we consider grace, this is exactly what we need Jesus to do. What am I talking about? Well, I am certainly acknowledging that murder and, and adultery in our society indeed cause catastrophic harm. But there are more prevalent and prominent things found in the heart of every man, woman, and child in our world and culture which keep us from knowing and encountering true neighbor love. Anger 
and lust. These are the things that um, keep us from knowing true purity and loveliness and things that are commendable and things that are excellent. Um, This is the level of holiness that Jesus has in mind in dealing with these commandments. What he has in mind is a, is a, a picture of humanity void of hate. Think about that for a second. What Jesus has in mind is a picture of humanity where humans would not consume other humans and their bodies and persons for selfish pleasure or gain. This is the demand and expectation of the law that God was placing on Israel here at Sinai. As they were seeing his glory, as he consumed the top of a mountain, and these words through Moses were being spoken to them, look what they go on to say in verse 18. They stand back away from the mountain and say, Moses, please, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. In light of God's holiness and seeing it and hearing the law, they see the rigor and expectation of the holy call. And here in this text, they are full of fear and trembling. You see, the Ten Commandments, understood accurately in light of the lawgiver, accomplish two major things that we all must take note of. Number one, They reveal the holiness of God. And number two, they reveal who we are in light of that. I want to say gently, but let me ask the question. Please consider this for you personally. I'm considering myself. Can you see how you and I, according to Jesus and his interpretation of the law, have adulterous and murderous hearts? Like given the courtroom parameters which will be set in place in the day of judgment when we will then stand in front of the law, who ever would be able truly with purity and sinlessness to stand in front of God and say, I have loved my neighbor? No one. The psalmist was right when he asked the question, O Lord, if you shouldn't mark iniquities, who could stand? I was was online this week, and uh, I came across this preacher preaching preaching blasphemous words, and I tremble even to read them to you, but I think this makes the point, so I'm going to do that. Uh, This is what he said as he preached to the church Pertaining to the Bible, I don't need to pretend that I believe that unbelievable events in mythic literature actually took place. What I need to remember is that what I am is a miracle and not a mistake. I don't need anyone to spend three days in a fish, argue with a donkey, or be outwitted by a snake. I don't need anyone to get pregnant at 90 years old or walk on water. All these are amazing stories, and I can work all kinds of good stuff out of them, but I don't need any of that. What I need to know is that I matter, and I can make a difference, and that me doing what I can in this world is love and action. What I need to know isn't that a miracle took place 2,000 years ago. 
What I need to know is that we are miracles today. My friends, uh, we do not believe this. This is not the gospel. If anyone were to believe this, God have mercy on their souls. Why? Because what this man and I agree on is a command to neighbor love. But what we disagree on largely is how neighbor love is possible. This man believed that at the core, humanity is good. So if they just got together with more morality and more love, philanthropically, they could together fix all that is wrong and make it right. But did you see what he did in this interpretation of the scriptures? Who did he remove? He removed God. And what happens when you remove God from those stories? Man becomes the hero. Genesis chapter 1 begins to thrust out the story and put on display the hero and the purpose of the story. What is it? In the beginning, God. This is a story about God. God saving humanity in their wretched, fallen, unable to save themselves estate. And so the question that you must come to grips with to understand the, the depths of Christ's love is this. Are you a good person? I'm really just asking you that. Are you a good person? Once you understand that you're not a good person, then you are ready to receive the total grace and mercy of God. This is what Jesus is doing in his teaching of the Ten Commandments. When he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, in context with his teaching of the law in Matthew chapter 5, what he was doing is, is showing the total impossibility to be perfect as God is perfect so that in, so that in his own perfection, sinners would put their faith in the perfect Son of God. going to read scripture for you because scripture is our main authority here. Romans chapter 3, Paul, the apostle, says these words. No one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside and together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, the boy of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being would be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This morning... I'd like to finish up our time by showing you that although this command of neighbor love is impossible, for those who place their faith in Christ, it is guaranteed. It is the byproduct of grace. The third point that I'd like to finish with this morning is the Redeemer's work in love. I was uh, talking with my wife this week in the car. We usually talk about life and things uh, Related, and uh, she was talking to me about um, her uh, her love 
and uh, delight in watching fairy tale uh, movies on TV. Uh, these fairy tale movies, mostly for my wife, are about romance. She loves the relationships and the romance and love that they portray because of the perfection. But she, over and over again, finds herself frustrated with the picture of perfection because she knows that it's just not a real picture. It's not a real thing to ever experience. And so one of the temptations that her and I were dialoguing with about in the car is her temptation to say, you know what, ah, forget that. Um, because that is a non-realistic picture, I'm just going to throw those fairy tale movies out in the garbage. I'm not going to watch them anymore. Uh, but here's why that wouldn't be a good idea. Um, because perfect love and perfect relationships are what we're made for. And our depraved nature isn't meant to deaden our desire for perfection, but rather to enhance it. As we revisit the garden and the fallen condition of man, what by God's sovereign grace is he then set up to do? The answer, to cry out for a redeemer. Adam and Eve are licked in the garden, totally helpless, but God promised the one who would come to make all things new, Christ the Redeemer, and in Jesus Christ, this is exactly who we get, the second Adam. See, Jesus, he comes to earth and doesn't just teach on the holiness of God and the rigor of God and the depths of the law, but he himself, as the son of God and federal, represent, uh, uh, federal head of mankind, those goes on to live a perfect life in sinner's place. So to provide for them hope in light of a rigorous law. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has entered into the story of man, God himself, and with holiness and perfection, lived out neighbor love perfectly to us before we met him. While we were aliens and strangers and enemies of God, God saw us in our sin and with love and mercy, lack of love for him and lack of neighbor, said, I love you, I'm going to reconcile you to myself out of free grace. And so we get a gift from the Savior, threefold. As we compare ourselves to the law and then look to Christ, we get total forgiveness and grace. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, which is our promise of our status before God through Jesus' righteousness. Secondly, we also get care and love for the wounds and burdens and scars that we all are holding from those who should have loved us but didn't. We're living in a broken world. We not only have sinned, but we have been sinned against and it's wounding and Jesus provides healing with mercy and grace. And thirdly, the last great gift of the gospel that we get through Christ is fulfillment of the law is his Holy Spirit, which goes on to do what? To fill us with power and produce in us faith and knowledge of God so we, that we can obey him truly from the heart. Becoming a new person, a new creature, having a new nature by the Spirit of Christ is what allows us to know personally this holy God and giver of the law and to enjoy intimacy with him. And we, in our families and also in our covenant family, by obeying these 10 commandments, then get to join Christ in his redemptive work. 
through the Holy Spirit, we're led in procession to build God's kingdom. And is the church's family, the church's call, that when we obey in partnership with Jesus, we restore the world. I pray this morning that you see God has commanded us to love our neighbors. He has given us power to do so and shown us how through Jesus. I pray that you'd be blessed and see great flourishing in the land for you, your children, to a thousand generations for the glory of Christ and the building of his church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy law. If you could mark iniquities, who could stand? But Christ can stand. And he stands in our behalf. And so I pray that we would place our faith in the Savior who has loved us and reconciled us and now made us your friend. Bless us, O God, as we approach this table to eat and drink the gospel and for our faiths to be affected in a mission way. I pray in your name. Amen.